right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. So today's episode, we're going to include the intros and hellos, followed by a little bit of our new news. Our main discussion will dive deep into the various types of basins and depositional environments. Between the bars of our main discussion, we will present to you another mineral minute. It's one of my favorites. And before signing off, we'll close things out with our band's plans for 2021 in that freaking rocks. A big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs, both to our new listeners and returning listeners alike, and for spending your time with us each week. If you'd like to reach out to us for episode ideas, answers you are wanting answered, or if you fancy being a guest or just want to tell about tell us about all the times that we have misspoke, <laughs> you can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram at Geology on the Rocks Podcast. So it looks like as if things are squared away over here. So without further ado to all of you over there i am your host is james the geologist and i'm brian Baggin. and this is we're gonna it's, it's a lot easier we're to rusty. do that when we're face to face i'll tell you that <laughs> much yeah. so how have yeah. you been man oh uh, I, i'm good i uh I, I i got negative covid results but i felt like someone hit me with a truck <laughs> for the past couple of weeks so that's why we're still apart on this one yeah I'm, and I'm feeling a lot better now, well that's so, good yeah because yeah. I mean it was kind yeah. of I was kind of because I know you said during your last episode that your other you know the you played a live show and were exposed and then you know that following yeah. that following Monday you were like oh I don't feel good <laughs> like yeah and then that continued for like over a week yeah and it was so. strange it was like no fever no like chills or anything but like really heavy dent chest cough exhaustion and I was like what the hell so. Yeah, man. Well, I'm I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. How are you, man? I'm good. Uh, I started teaching again online, but then I also started my classes this this past week, and then they another Ooh. one on Monday. Oh God, I was I, <laughs> I had it up. So it's uh, I'm taking a legal policy research class, and then Holy my crap. other class <laughs> is quantitative analysis methods and or research something to do with quantitative like how to I don't know it just sounds like it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> and then oh no go ahead well I was going to say that so like how do you switch gears because you are a, you are a geologist you're a scientist and yeah. then you like switch into this other realm of what you're doing your PhD on like uh, to me, I, I couldn't skip over to that other way of thinking quickly. It, I mean, like, it, how do you do that? It was, it's kind of, it's difficult because I'm sure all of them in our Zoom call. So I try, I, I always, whenever I'm making an argument, I'll try to bring it back to geology <laughs> somehow. I mean, cause that's just where <laughs> yeah. my, I'm my, com I'm comfortable talking about, you know, right. and like I have all this information to draw from. So I kind of, it helps with that, but it, it what it's really done, it has helped me in, I guess, more of the social aspects of of life and all of the <laughs> inequalities. I mean, it's really, I mean, that's basically what I, I feel like it's opened my eyes to this like whole different world. And I don't know how to, how I feel about things anymore, <laughs> except for that, oh, that, that okay. we need to, we can all do better. Yeah. Okay. So, but it, it, it is difficult, but I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to ground myself in, uh, it's just reshaping it and your, your thoughts just a yeah. little bit. But uh, we did get a, a, a pretty cool email this week or, or it was last week from Cole in Ohio. It was a pretty awesome yeah. email. So here's a shout out to you. Uh, we definitely like the idea of, because he mentioned to about an episode about the, the pathways for undergraduates in geology and career fields. So I, I feel like that's something that in a future episode that we could really probably 
dive pretty deep into. Yeah, I think that's a pretty important topic and I definitely want to be able to contribute on that. So I think we'll probably take you up on that, Cole. Yeah. uh, Thanks for hitting us up. Yeah. So again, emails. We like emails. We respond to you, hopefully (laughs) in a timely manner. (laughs) But shall we uh, do a little new news, Brian? Yeah, we should definitely do a new news. All right, man. Well, (laughs) new news that I do in the nude. No, so uh, so just, (laughs) no, it's like a side thing. Like, so I, 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 whenever I, so I will take a shower, you know, cause with my kids and then it's just, it makes sense just to keep the shower on and do that. But I, I don't, I don't ever get into pajamas. Like even when I'm teaching, I don't do pajamas. I, it, it's weird. So like I get fully dressed, like I get a new outfit on and like, I'm good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's, I don't no, know if it's the mental thing of it. Like I need to be, you know. It totally is. Yeah. Like for half of the pandemic, I was just in like basketball shorts and a t-shirt, but now I'm like, I'm wearing like boots and I'm wearing this cool hat that I got. Like I'm tired of just wearing like slob stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I get it. So, so you get it. So yeah. I, it's just random. <laughs> but anyways, I'll go ahead and lead things this off this week, if that's okay with you, Mr. Baggins. Of course. All right. Well, my first article to present to you, the Rainbow Meteorite. I think this is what I was, oh, oh next week I'll, I'll bring this up. But so <laughs> a rainbow color space rock in 2019, actually it broke up over Costa Rica. And then when it broke apart, it scattered debris between the villages of La Palmera and Aguas Zarcas. I, don't, I think that's how you say it. But now ongoing <laughs> studies hint that this fireball may contain the chemical building blocks of life. So, <laughs> so the soft meteor originally broke off from a much larger asteroid, which formed out of dust from the nebula. And this nebula just means cloud of gas, right? So anyways, that very nebula that, that it came from would later birth our solar system. So it is believed. So So this rainbow meteor contains complex carbon or carbon compounds, which may include amino acids. And we know that amino acids, uh, if if they come together in certain certain ways that they form proteins and molecules like DNA. So uh, whenever they found this, you know, these types of meteors are interesting in that they may hold the key to how life actually began. Well, I know when these reports first started coming in of the meteor impact, I know scientists, they pretty much, I was reading a couple articles on this and it seemed like they all were on like this uh, race to find uh, like the purest <laughs> sample, right? Because uh, there was uh, a kind of a bidding war for the samples and it was important that they get these samples quickly because they can become contaminated. Anyways, oh, right. okay. yeah, not only was it a rainbow colored space rock, the really, the, the picture of it was really cool, but you know, since yeah. since it happened in 2019, but like reports are starting to come out like of the importance of it uh, with all yeah. these different chemicals in it. I wonder, so was it like just rainbow colored however you look at it or was it? Like it almost looks like like Bornite and Choco Pyrite, like like oh, how, okay. how how yeah. when it's broken open and it's like the the actual meteor is or the meteorite is actually like it looks rainbowy. Yeah, wow, that's freaking awesome. Yeah, and then it just like blows my mind. Why was that floating out there? And how long has it been floating out there? Like, is it just like solar system age or? or yeah, what? no. So, so like, it, yeah, I think it was the some of the parts that just didn't get consumed whenever you had the the planets being formed. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna continue on my normal. <laughs> I, I just read the first I like I always wait I don't ever read your articles <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna stick with some zoology for my first one so my first story is that they've been able to add the unicorn of the sea like the narwhal right yeah. To the size matters for sexual selection. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so they're tough, which are like spiraling horns, basically. I didn't like, I guess I didn't know things about narwhals, but they're modified teeth. Oh, wow. And so like that's a tooth that's erupting from their head. <gasps> but all the team of scientists discovered that they measured the tusk on all these different narwhal and their like tails and other appendages. And they were like, the tusk is the one thing that's disproportionate and not uh, relative to body size. Okay. And so like they also then viewed behavior of these over years and years and realized that all the females would flock to the one male that had the really long, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, hanging out the breath. Oh. And so it was like, yeah, so these narwhal dudes just run around. They're like, I'm bigger than you. And ladies like it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay. Cool. Dude, so like narwhals, they're gnarly looking creatures, man. Every time I see them, I'm like, yeah. there is no way that is a real animal. And then <laughs> they're, they're really, these mass, like they're those, those things, like those modified tooth, they're massive. <laughs> And it, yeah. it, it, they look science fiction-y. But so, so basically, yeah. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the size of their their nether regions. It, it's basically, they're going to, the females are selecting based on the bigger other appendage coming out. They're with, with the head that they, that males should be thinking with, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to continue yeah. with my raining down of fiery objects from the sky in a study of an ancient comet explosion in the Middle East. So there is a place in Northern Syria, Abu Harayra. <laughs> yeah. So, but this place, it actually housed some of the first known farmers on earth. So if we know anything about human history, it's like whenever we started agriculture is really, you know, that that demarcation of, of something that happened in our lineage, right? So we were no longer, we didn't have to go out and hunt and gather. So anyways, this prehistoric village was, right? But then some mysterious fury incident destroyed the town, leaving mostly remnants of thatched huts coated in carbon. Then the village was not. Excavators of the site really found among the wreckage these little glass spheroids formed from the melting of the soil, melted iron, and sulfur-rich samples were found along with nano diamonds. So scientists were recently examining these glassy materials more closely and found that they actually could only have formed at temperatures, get this, at over 3,630 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. That's 2,000 degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what these researchers uh, concluded that fragments from a passing comet likely had exploded over an ancient village, releasing this intense heat wave that scorched the village and the soil beneath it. Man, I mean, could you even imagine, like, yeah. what comes to mind to me is, like, Miley Cyrus, <laughs> like, I came in like a wrecking ball, but uh, this, this, this yeah. huge, massive, like, explosion, I... I, get, I go back to like, if you were one of those villagers and then just, <laughs> you were, and then you were not. <laughs> 3,630 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. My God. And what, how strange, like little glass spheres, so were they like, it was melt, not like a pectide, right? Like, yeah. So it wasn't from impact. Like it was, it was from just that scorching hot heat wave that came and just like cooked everything is what I'm, is what I gathered from the article. Yeah. That's like, I, I wondered like, so I was trying to think, so if you have quartz and then colicide and stichovite, like, is this even beyond, that has to even be beyond those. I mean, it, it seems like, cause I mean, cause I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty hot, right? The, the 2000 degrees Celsius. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's a that's kind of warm. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, yeah. So um, I didn't read anything. I didn't see anything like a shocked zone that it was like okay. from an impact. It was 
it seems like that this it exploded in the sky above it and then that heat wave kind of like whenever the the huge meteorite impacted the yeah like when it shot up all that ash and then that ash kind of rained down and that's where we get that that such a broad sweeping little carbon layer over everything because right i think that's how it worked yeah oh. yeah and miley siren she brought that like, <laughs> like, like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she probably was on that 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 comment. <laughs> she was on the comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, my next one also has to do with some fauna stuff, but this one is long gone. So a new dinosaur called Lin Wulong Shinkui, or Amazing Dragon from Lingu, has been discovered. Nice. Uh, so these were like those really big neosauropods. Kind of like the like brontosaurus or diplodocus, docus, yeah. But they're the huge ones, right? And so basically, they realized this dinosaur shouldn't be where it is. It was in China, and it showed up to be like a lot older than they previously thought these dinosaurs were in this area. So these specific dinosaurs were thought to originate about 160 million years ago, and this one was found to be 174 million years old. And the region, so in the Jurassic time, was cut off from the rest of the world by sea waves. And so they're like, we have misunderstood the rifting that was involved at that time. And so now they're like, maybe the, like, isolation of East Asia was less profound and much more short-lived than scientists previously realized and so, so pretty cool like it's always changing man <laughs> no so and, and and i feel like that's that's exactly what the the best part about science is right so like we have these these held assumptions and then something comes along be like well this shouldn't be and then it kind of just gives new insight into all of this and I, yeah, and, yeah. and and it's one of the reasons why i i love new news but i mean like i i feel like that story is like you put that in perfect because you you said it was isolated and cut off yeah. right so i mean right. i mean i feel like that really oops, excuse me really actually <laughs> plays a lot into what we're going to be talking about today right so yeah. on to episode 17 we go we titled this episode people have faces rocks have faces and what we're really going to do is we wanted to talk about the importance of the depositional environments and then if time's permitting talk a little bit about some of the different types of basins with respect to their tectonic setting and deposits. I can almost go ahead and guarantee that we're not going to get anywhere close to that given that, okay, so out there, like we take like lots of notes. This one ended up being like 28 pages. So I don't really think that we're going to get to it. We are going to talk about depositional environments. We are going to talk about facies and kind of how we use the rock record to tell us a story. Yeah. Yeah. So depositional environments. So when we talk about these depositional environments, we are referring to a specific type of place in which sediments are deposited, kind of where we left off last week with basins. So such as stream channels, lakes, the bottom of the deep ocean, etc. So depositional environments are sometimes referred to as sedimentary environments. So we may go back and forth on the term, but they basically mean the same thing. And then, and then what's really interesting about all of this is that these layers of sediment that accumulate in each of these depositional environments have their own distinctive characteristics. And these characteristics are what provide us very important clues and information with regard to the geologic history of any given area. <laughs> yeah, these characteristics we observe and measure in the sedimentary rocks are how we are really going to be able to do where it came from or its depositional environment. They're clues, and so, if you will, they include their lithology, which is the rock type, sedimentary structures, 
that are prevalent in the rock and also any fossils that the rock may contain. Yeah. So we get to play Sherlock Holmes, right? With the, the deducing yeah. of, of, of everything. <laughs> so really having a knowledge of really these depositional environments is important for reconstructing Earth's history, understanding Earth's processes and helping humans survive and prosper on Earth. So in a way, we are reconstructing Earth's history by undressing it piece by piece, layer by layer. And that's why I think the Earth is sexy. <laughs> I undress it. it. And by and by <laughs> analyzing the sedimentary rock, we were able to see what actually was happening on Earth at the, the place or during that time when the sediment was originally being deposited. Like the study you're doing, Mr. Baggins. Yeah. 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 So basically, we learn about geologic history of a particular region. It's going to come mostly from examining these layers of sedimentary rock from the area and determining their depositional environments. Reconstructing depositional environments are really going to enable geologists like you and I to observe climates of the past. Mm -hmm. Like, Were they in drier or is there evidence of a lot of flooding and the question of flooding? Life forms of the past, how they interacted in that environment versus today and also the geography of the past, like what we were talking about with the dinosaur. Yeah. That means like the location of mountains, basins, rivers, bays of the ocean. Since these sedimentary rocks are stratified in age sequence, summarized by the principles of relative relative geologic age, yeah. layers of the sedimentary rock sort of act like this, just a record of how that specific area was changing, both physically and biologically over the extent of geologic time, and it spanned across these sedimentary rock layers. Um, strata are basically a chapters of a book, right? <laughs> so yeah. they're each having their own important part to tell in the story of whatever geologic formation or environment in question. Yeah, and you're exactly right. So those those changes in climate, life forms, and geography over time is what's really going to constitute the geologic history of any particular region. Ultimately, regional geologic histories are compiled into a bunch of little stories making up the history of Earth over the whole course of its existence. And this includes things such as the formation, the growth, and movements of continents and ocean basins. Or it can include the growth and erosion of major mountain ranges, or like we've said, the the history of life on Earth. Yeah, this is exactly why understanding Earth processes is so important. We know that sediments are deposited in many environments on the Earth's surface. However, like some of these environments, we we can't be there to watch <laughs> twenty four hours a day, right? Unless so you're on a prison have... sentence, like for <laughs> yeah, okay, well maybe maybe they're the best geologists out there. I don't know. <laughs> But, I mean, we don't really have the familiarity or don't have the capability to observe that firsthand. And so that's what we're here for. Geology on the rocks. We're here to, like, make this make sense to us and you. Yeah, yeah. So, like, we're yeah. basically, we're here to help shed some light on some of these lesser known environments such as, uh, like, deep ocean basins, right? Like, that's mm, kind of, like, like, so, like, they, they know, all. <laughs> I think that's one of the, the most, uh, I was reading some article about how they just now recently discovered, like, this, like, I don't know, massive I, I don't crustacean at the bottom of the Indian Ocean and it was gross it looks like Darth Vader basically <laughs> it's like massive dude it's like the size of an arm oh my god Ugh. wow yeah so anyways <laughs> wow I, I am not gonna be able to get that out of my head for the rest of the episode <laughs> Back to the some of the sediments were deposited in the past. They existed in conditions that may not presently exist, like anoxic times when the atmosphere had no free oxygen. Yeah. Is kind of what I mean by that. Or an environment that's served catastrophically by a gigantic meteor impact. Or a comet, right? Like yeah. a comet coming down. Yeah. Boom. So um <laughs> so we, we don't have those like happening on the scale of some of our bigger extinction events 
interesting. So we can't just say the president is always key to the past, but sometimes we don't have the president to just get the complete straight doorway into what we're looking at. So I kind of think this is where sediment and depositional environment sedimentary structures are so important. And then I think it's also important thing to really keep in mind in the forefront of your brain balls out there if you're doing this for a career is when answering questions about past environments, right? So it, it really helps to give everything a context. Really, these sedimentary rocks are really these portals into the past and they're going to serve as windows in a way to look into these past environments. So by doing so, we're actually learning about the processes that we would otherwise know very little about, right? And then we can infer such details about these things as the the chemistry of the air or water with the sediments were in contact. And and we can think of it in the physical sense as well, or the physical processes that were occurring in that particular environment at that time. Yeah, the knowledge and understanding of the processes have a lot of applications for even our human health uh, and survival. So an example would be one that like, um, Let's reconstruct a depositional environment of uh, certain sediments deposited along the coast of the Pacific Northwest. Okay. We'd be able to conclude that great subduction, earthquakes, and tsunamis, so giant waves coming in, were created by the earthquakes and were the driving forces of that depositional environment within these sedimentary deposits. Yeah, yeah. Tsunamis are, are my kids' favorite. <laughs> they still like tsunamis. But it, I mean, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. So I was watching the show on Nat Geo. I think it, what is it on the, what is it, the, the Disney? It's Nat it was through Nat Geo, but anyways, it was about that area up in the Pacific Northwest, like at that Megathrust fault, where oh, yeah. you know, located there off the coast. Is that it's part of the Juan de Fuca, blah blah blah, yeah, where, where yeah. it's subducting. That it's actually one of the I I don't know the actual time, but I know it's the only part in that area that hasn't had any relief from that strain being built up. And since mm. Seattle sits atop the sedimentary basin, and we know sedimentary basins amplify seismic waves released, yeah. it has actually led to the reevaluation of earthquake hazards in Washington and Oregon alike. They kind of predict like it's been building up. So they're like, well, it's bad news when it does because this is a mega thrust. (laughs) And then there's been... Don't move there. (laughs) Yeah, right. But it's so pretty. But there's... I know it is. There's actually been a push towards like rewriting the building codes and engineering standards for construction of schools, roads, bridges, and all the kind of infrastructure-y things out there that, you know, will probably fail if they didn't really update these things. And it's even affected such things as insurance policies and even construction costs. Huh. Yeah, it's thinking when you mentioned that, like infrastructure, right? I actually have to deal with the depositional environment a lot at work when we're, we put a dam on top of these residual soils or formations and we, when we, we only have a short outcrop to look at or we do a little subsurface investigation, right? And so we'll, we'll drill a few holes and we'll start to pick up patterns spatially and so what kind of my job is, is basically like what is, what are we actually looking at under here where how is it deposited and the reason we would do that is we're not going to drill 2,000 holes yeah. <laughs> in like a dam of us but we need to know out of like five boring what are we looking at and so we can tell like is this fluvial is it a delta an ancient delta and yeah. so we can then piece together like, okay are we looking at x amount of dollars for capturing all the water that would come through here or is it just one single path that we just need to really focus on like relieving some of the water pressure so depositional environment is huge yeah especially in engineering infrastructure so like (laughs) no it really does so this 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 topic it it covers so much but i think that we're starting to hopefully see that we can use this analysis to really help us locate things of value i i know 
your specific purpose, like you, whenever you're going to, I guess, be building dams, it's of value to know what you're building on top of and kind of, you know, if it is it going to be structurally sound, but also by knowing what to look for as in certain characteristics of these depositional environments, it can help us locate things such as sources of oil. It can help us find coal seams, natural gas, deposits of valuable metals, minerals, rocks, and even aquifers, which are usable sources of the groundwater. Yeah, and I think that kind of leads us nicely into what the three main umbrella depositional environments, which we we broadly classify as marine, transitional, and continental. Yeah. Um, so you know, I you coined me the salty one. I think you. I think <laughs> so, you. I think you termed that yourself, right? No. I, I think so. Well, I don't. I don't. Remember. I know. Well, I'll yeah. go back and listen to it. I'll figure it out. <laughs> but uh, maybe we could switch it up. You can take on the marine and transition environment. Man, you. But bet. I am going to open a new beer. So cheers. Cheers. I'm not oh, yeah. drinking on the rocks tonight. I am sorry, but. No, it's okay. I think that. Yeah. Well, cheers to you. I'll, I'll drink. I'll drink my whiskey. So excellent. Sips ah, are so good. Well, you bet, salty Brian. <laughs> but this is, I just hope to not disappoint any of my uh, oceanography fans out there. So here goes. When we talk about marine depositional environments, what we're talking about here is going to be shallow marine. So this can be clastic to carbonate uh, sequences. We're going to talk about carbonate shelves. It can include continent, like the uh, areas of the continental slopes and then the deep marine. Then transitioning from the sea to the land, we have naturally what we just said is trans transitional depositional environments, and this include include things such as deltas, your estuaries, your lagoons, and beaches. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm left with the last one, which is continental. That literally just means sediments <laughs> deposited on land. Yeah. So fluvial, alluvial. I have to, I have to admit something okay. to you. So at work, we constantly use alluvial all the time. Okay. When, like, I rarely use the word fluvial. And for this episode, I was like, oh, I don't really have to study much. <laughs> deal with this stuff all the time. And I started looking into this. Alluvial is actually properly used in mountainous areas with high energy flooding. Yeah, so it's going to be like the talus slopes. It's going to be... Yeah, so, yeah. So it's, it's, it's alluvial fans. Like, that's why we call it that. Yeah. Uh, but what's so weird is I work for a really big government agency. They always, they use alluvial and alluvium for just regular river deposits. Oh, really? So they don't, they don't, yeah. there's no distinction. There's not really any distinction so, between yeah. the two? No. And so I'm, I'm putting an end to that on my, like as far as I go. So I'm going to rewrite a lot of my stuff because I, it, it's awesome to catch like, wow, I've been doing this wrong. I, I love <laughs> that feeling. Here we go. This is my life mission. Uh, no. So, so anyway, so fluvial, uh, meaning like river derived, alluvial, high relief areas, uh, high gradient kind of things with flooding and like we're talking about talus slopes, which we would all those also with water driven fans and braided streams, but uh, glacial. So glaciers are impacting things. Aeolian, meaning wind deposits, lacustrine, lake, and polluto, which is more of your swamp deposits. And each of these environments have their own characteristics that we use to tell that story we were talking about. So can't you have, what? what is it? Is it pluvial? There's also like pluvial, right? Which is, I think, uh, is that where the... Pluvial, yeah. Where it's like, uh, I don't, is it glacial deposits like when it does it into a, a lake? I'm not sure. I'll have to look I don't it. remember, and I really need to know that because I take the PG in two months oh. so I'm, I'm curious how that'll go uh, i hope it's not worse 
Well, I, I put a note Pluvial. into our, our show notes for you. To, <laughs> I'll highlight it here. Pluvial. Awesome. I will. And I'll try not to uh, do the plosive. That. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know. Like in the list I gave, and, and I think also the ones you gave, like they're very broad. And so like that's kind of where I think we can dive into the next section is we wanted to bring up sedimentary facies. And so to summarize, depositional environments are, are the broad sense of where the sediments were deposited geographically, right? Like where they are spatially, under what condition in a physical environment. Correct. But these sediments will all have their own unique characteristics in how they're laid down. So to go beyond this, we look at the sedimentary facies to get to that next level of detail. So James, what are sedimentary facies? Yeah, you asked this because I mean, like you, you were like, okay, we need to establish a this this working definition, right? So I I, yeah. I, I looked into it, and by definition, we're going to define facies as a characteristic association of sedimentary rock features that are going to be linked to a distinct sedimentary environment. In a given location, one sedimentary facie is going to tend to grade laterally into others. So this is kind of where we get the, the law of lateral continuity, right? So for example, beach rocks from a barrier island may actually grade into lagoonal rocks, which can grade into delta deposits. I, I, I wrote that down, but then I, I felt like I needed to expand on it a little more and make it even more confusing, right? So we need to keep in mind that physical, chemical, and biological factors influence these environments. So everything that we've talked about before, and then we need to consider the conditions that they produced largely determine the nature of the sediments that actually accumulate in a basin. So we also, there are going to be several different local sedimentary environments that may thus exist side by side within a single basin as conditions are going to change laterally. So this is important to keep in mind is that the sedimentary rocks that are ultimately produced there can be related to these depositional environments. And then the fancy words are these different but con contemporaneous, contemporaneous. Okay. So these different but contemporaneous, <laughs> contemporaneous <laughs> and juxtaposed sedimentary rocks and these are known as sedimentary facies. Okay. Yeah. So, so when we say that Sedimentary facies are bodies of sediment that originate simultaneously in adjacent depositional environments, something like what you mentioned, like the beach facies, right? Yes. That's going to be a lot different than if we were looking at a tidal flat. So, and, and we would call that like the tidal flat would be tidal flat facies because uh -huh. it's like kind of like what our title of the episode is like humans have faces. We recognize those, right? Like you're able to remember someone's face, but rocks have faces and it's because these are characteristics that are easily recognizable in a fleet yeah. that would happen there. And so these beach facies, the tidal facies, they'd both be deposited at the same time because you'd have you'd be having the, the wave interaction, right? But then you have this tidal force coming in and depositing yeah. sand in a certain way too. So compared to the beach facies, the tidal flat facies will have a smaller average sediment grain size, more bioturbation fossils, and contain cross beds and ripples created by tidal currents. They have more mollusks or um, other shallow water fossils, gastropods that be preserved in their original place 
in unbroken form. Yeah, so that's where like it might get confusing too. So like all of that's occurring in the same depositional environment. So I think those would be in that transitional depositional environment. But we can see that yeah. that that it's not it, nothing's ever going to be static, right? So it's going to it, exactly. and then and then with the rise and the fall of the sea level, it's going to shift in different ways. So that's where we can get this contemporaneous sedimentation happening in the different things. There really usually there isn't really sharp distinct boundaries between two facies preserved in the sedimentary record. Instead, the boundary between them will be kind of this zone with beds of sediment that interfinger and grade into each other sideways from one facies to another. Yeah, so interfingering meaning, meaning exactly what it sounds like. Interlock your hands, and on a much larger scale, these spaces do that. Yeah, so this is going to be <laughs> like, thing. yeah, yeah, I, okay, I'm doing that well, right now. You I think of, yeah, I did it too. I, just, uh, <laughs> I also think of like the mixing of, you have brackish water, right? Like, uh-huh. And so they don't mix very well. And so like salt water, fresh water, right? And so you'll have like different levels, like when they coincide together, you're going to have, this, it's not abrupt, it's the current kind of battle backwards. Yeah. In the forces. So that's, that's also a way I think of it. We can also take, for example, three sedimentary facies adjacent to each other. And let's say that they are the beach and the tide flat facies or the tidal flats that have both a marine and nearshore portion of a continental shelf and an offshore carbonate platform or reef. Uh, really, these beach and tide flat facies sediments are going to be mostly sand. And then we can see in the bay facies is going to be mostly mud. And then the reef facies is most likely really going to be made up of uh, even shells and corals that build up over the carbonate platform, which are made of these carbonate minerals. That made me think that if you're looking for like a really nice vacation spot that has really pretty water, like I just think of a bay not being the place <laughs> you would want to go. No. It's going to be pretty muddy and the water is not going to be your pretty blue that you see on your travel agency. So, uh-uh. um, yeah, and just a little word of advice. So uh, back to sediments again. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if the sediments are buried and liquefied, meaning like turning into sedimentary rock, the beach sand turns into sandstone. The Makes bay sense. mud turns into a shale or a mudstone. Or the reef sediments turn into limestone. And then I think what's awesome about all of this is that the sedimentary facies reveal, among other things, is really how the sea level relative to the shore of a continent is is really constantly changing over the course of this geologic time and on stale scales that can vary from decades to really millions of years. To give a more specific example of how facies changes record sea level change, yeah. deep within the Grand Canyon of Arizona, there's a sequence of three sedimentary rock formations. So the Tapit sandstone, the Bright Angel Shale, and the Moab. How do you say that? Moab? Moab? Yeah, Moab. Moab. But yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I, I remember, I think some of those where you get those unconformities, but those, those sedimentary formations though, right. So I think they, they have originated as a continuous series of sediment, but I, I want to say that as the sea levels kind of rose gradually. So, well, relative to the land over a span of time that took over millions of years in the area or something like that, I may have gotten something mixed up in there, but yeah, I, I think. You're, you're right. Like so, during that time and place, the sea level grew deeper. It moved the ocean shore inland, right? So mm-hmm. um, we have to keep in mind that when the shore is moving inland, it's going to mean that the beach faces are also moving inland too. So you'll see those like uh, typically at different elevations, right? So you have a pre-existing yeah. uh, slope into the beach, and so then as you move inward, usually you're going to have an increase in elevation. The bay faces 
will shift in the same direction along with the reef safeties as well. Yeah, and then also along the low gradient coast of the continent, as the sea level rises higher, what had been that beach was covered by deeper water and became the bottom of the bay where that mud could start to accumulate on top of the sand. So then as the sea level continues to rise higher still, the, the area is deeper now, further from the shore where the water was relatively clear and free from plastic sediment. Yeah, and which in turn will allow for a coral reef to build on top of that that mud foundation, right? So yeah. as as more geologic time passes, the environment of the area will change and deposits sand, mud, carbonate sediment will be buried, lithified into a sequence of these different sedimentary formations. Uh, from bottom to top, they're gonna be sandstone, shale, and limestone. This sequence of sediments they record a gradual sideways shift of the sedimentary phases during the marine transgression. Yeah, and then like what you were saying earlier too, I know this is kind of a little bit off topic, but you know where you where you're not going to drill like nine thousand holes to get like a, an accurate picture. So so like yeah. even though we can see, if you were to think of it, if you were to like take a slice of the Earth there, like you would see kind of like these triangles going back and forth of them grading inwards and outwards, right? If you were to think of the right. the axis of this of this square of the slice being east and west, you would see yeah. kind of like them going like making uh, zigzags up. But you wouldn't see that if you were to take a core sample, right? So and it's it's if you were to drill at different spots, you kind of what we were talking about when you make those lithophases maps and kind of, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So we can give like a 3D dimension and kind of all of this around. Yeah. So that's that's yeah. important of doing the cores and all of that. That, that is important. And it's also important because like um, when we tend to see a 2D graphic, we, our minds tend to stay there. Yeah. But when it comes to water and, and geologic materials, you have to view it in 3D and like sometimes in 4D because you have to anticipate like what is water going to do there. Yeah. And so you may think like, oh, well, you know, right here, uh, there's a clay unit where 50 feet in a line in my head, there was sandstone above that. And so you're like, well, it would stop here. Like the, it, it pinched out, right? It was a lenticular sand bed. But then you realize you do two other borings and you see the sandstone um, just 10 feet off from that clay. So it's depositional environment. Looking at things in a 3D way really shines light on like, hey, you, you can miss something if you're just looking at a stratigraphic column of one boring. It, it gets tricky and I, I've had to learn the hard way. No, I think I think but, we all do, yeah. and 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 I the 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 seeing in three D, and then I guess even four D, like over time, because it's not like again, like yeah. I think I, I mentioned it last week, like even though it may be like two centimeters somewhere, like this deposit a hundred right. feet away, <laughs> it could be twenty meters deep. So I mean, it's it's exactly. always changing. Yeah. So, but so anyways, at a given location, such as what we're talking about as where the Grand Canyon is now located, evidence of a a marine transgression appears as a continuous stratigraphic sequence of sandstone at the bottom, shell above the sandstone, and then that limestone on top of the shell. So that's that kind of, uh, that's, that there's, that's, I think we have an episode. I mean, I think that's called like sequence stratigraphy, right? But anyways, the, the, the minerals, the sedimentary structures, the, the sedimentary textures within those rocks and fossils are really going to be specifically indicative of a beach, tide flat, muddy bay, and offshore reef depositional environment. It's also possible for a regressive sequence to occur as sea levels goes down yeah. relative to the coast of a continent. It results in the opposite sequence. So you'll have like limestone on bottom, shale, middle, sandstone on top. Regressive sequences are less likely to be preserved in the rock record than are the transgressive ones. And it, it, it may look a little different. So 
this is something that you really have to have the old experience because you'll look at something and you're like, oh yeah, this is a, a transcription sequence, right? Like I, I'm going up and there's limestone at the top, but like you may have had a lot of erosion that ripped out or faulting later uh-huh. that like destroyed other sediments on top and then got washed away with flood. So you have to be able to see like, is this transgressive or is it regressive? Because they don't just happen like, they're not like out there with signs on them. Like, hey, I happened and then this and then like, this is what was happening at the time. It, it's really difficult because you can, if you look at an outcrop wrong or an area, you can you can deduce it uh, incorrectly. And then it's, also, it's so weird. I, I, I used to think that limestones were so easy to identify because they're just this white, oh God. like they're this white chalky <laughs> yeah. material. But God dang, like, like you know, they, they it, it highly varies. And, you know, I, I think of like chalk or like, you know, the building oh, yeah. materials of <laughs> limestone that, you know, line my house. I remember I, what it was it. We were doing something when we were, at, I don't know, we were doing that mapping project. But I remember that limestone is actually the reason why my, my one of my rock hammers is dull. It's because of the limestone yeah. was so freaking hard trying to I think oh, I, no, yeah. man so but yeah like what you were saying is in that the the regressive sequences so when we say transgression regress and let's kind of I'll, I'll oh, just yeah. define that so a transgression is where you have sea level it's coming it's it's rising and then regressive is when the sea level of a, in an area is going to I guess recede right so it's going outwards right and it's kind of like whenever yeah. I think of transgression you know all of it it's I mean it's 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 almost seems counterintuitive because like you see the sandstone so you know it's it's further down but like I would assume that it would, I don't know why my brain thinks that way because like we're, we're really talking about like the sea level getting deeper at this one spot right but right, yeah. at a later date but it, it, it almost seems like uh, in my head I, I always try to like in my head I have to consciously think don't flip this James like the sandstone's on the bottom sandstone's on the bottom yeah <laughs> it's hard and, and that's kind of what like but now I have a little bit of clarity and what I was trying to say is like you'll be looking at when you're when you have only limestone in yeah. your outcrop yet they like and, and we can get into Durham stuff another day, but like you have blackstones, greenstones, and whatever. It's going to look like, is that that different? So how do I tell, like, I see a little bit more sand in here. That could have been just like a little bullet in like sediment supply. And then you're you're still, though, in like a uh, transcript sequence. Yeah. So it's, it's super hard. It is kind of counterintuitive sometimes when you think about sequence stratigraphy and regression, transgression sequences, but it'll make sense once you just get out and do it. Like, yeah. And, and you know that, but so our listeners don't feel like you're you're screwing up as a geologist. I promise you I've screwed up many times trying to figure this out. Too. Yeah. And then why, like what you're saying about the transgressive sequences not being as preserved, this is because when we think of the, the sea level falling, it's actually exposing parts of the continent, which had previously been below sea level. And now they're going to be exposed yeah. above sea level and subjected to the forces of weathering and erosion. Therefore, the sediments are likely to be removed by the earth processes rather than kept buried and preserved within the earth. Yeah. So we have, I think we've gone over depositional environments and a basic understanding of what species is. Why don't we start trying to make a story, tie it all together? I think that's a great idea. <laughs> but first, let's do a little bit of mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Yes. Mineral minutes. Minerals. All right, so today's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the sodium, calcium, magnesium, aluminum, silicate, fluoride. I don't know if I'm even <laughs> saying these right. Fluoride, hydroxide, fluoroindonite. 
fluoroindonite chemical formulas NaCa2Ng5SI7AlO22FOOH2. Fluoroindonite <laughs> is going to be yellow to intense yellow. It This mineral streaks yellow and has a vitreous to greasy luster. Fluoroindonite is part of the monoclinic prismatic crystal system and is biactically negative. Okay, so fluoroindonite can grow needle-like crystals. It can be fibrous or grow tabular prismatic crystals. Fluoroindonite has perfect 110 cleavage and has a hardness between 5 and 6. Fluoroindonite... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> fluoroindonite <laughs> is named for the type locality from the Etnian volcanic complex in Catania, <laughs> Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Ishigamayama, lava dome of Kimpo Volcano, Kumamoto, uh, south. Where's Jason when we need him? Kumamoto, Kumamoto, southwest uh, Japan. We can, we can see it that it forms in gray red altered Ben Moriatic lavas and other andesites crystallized from late stage hydrothermal fluids. Stay tuned for next week's mineral fluoro restrike. Mineral. Oh, don't have kids, dude. So good, so good. Well, you I, know what? I, 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 when you said this is Jason's line, I was like, we can have him in every episode to have the long, like, little. <laughs> <laughs> just have him read something ridiculous long, and you can just hear his, yeah. like, I just, is just, he's just like, oh, yeah. God dang it. <laughs> All right, man. So, so good. I'm, I'm glad we started doing Mineral Minute, man. <laughs> All right, so back to our story of depositional environments being the broad physical and geographical locations, which will determine what type of sediments will normally be deposited. Okay. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and within the broad, we can recognize several distinct associations of sediment. <laughs> several distinct associations of sedimentary rock features associated with each depositional environment. These characteristics we're going to term and most geologists will as well. We term them phases, yep. which link the rock features to distinct sedimentary environments. Yeah. So from here, like any good story, we really need to have an outline, right? So the the first key to identification of sedimentary phases in the environment is the relationship between energy and its class size. Generally speaking, the the higher the energy that is, the faster the wind or water that's moving, right? The larger the grains can be kept in suspension, and it it's really going to deposit what it can't keep in suspension. For example, a more swift moving stream from a mountain might keep gravel-sized objects suspension. So its deposits would chiefly consist of only large pebbles and boulders. Yeah, so your alluvium. So another example might include a larger river, which is fluvium, that might be slow enough that sand-sized grains would settle out and keep the silt and clay-sized particles in suspension, which is typical for, again, a fluvial deposit or facies. Yeah, if we look at like a lacustrian environment, so a lake, it may have so little energy that even the clay comes out of suspension at a time and settles at the bottom. Right, right, yeah. So we can really start to think of it as the smaller, the dominant class, the lower energy the depositional environment has, and this is going to heavily influence the lithology that we find in these in these sediment deposits. And that kind of leads to the second key part to our, our little story here. These clues are the small scale features, the rock displays, and we call these 
sedimentary structures. And sedimentary structures, I think, are I, I I really do. I think this is like the one of the more important little tiny clues that we can use. Yeah, like when it comes to sedimentary rocks, like you gotta know these. Yeah, and and we use these structures as cross beds, uh, graded beds, and mud cracks to determine which way was up in original sequence of sediments, right? So it it it's really yeah. possible for even tectonic forces to deform the rocks in the crust to point the beds that beds of sedimentary rock have been turned upside down and overturned. Yeah, and so as geologists, we have to examine sedimentary structures to really be sure which way is up. <laughs> um, and I remember first sedimentology lab, like it was like we were looking at relic structures and we were like, they yeah. were always say like, which way is up? It's always a trick question, but eventually you learn it and like you need, you, you have to know that. And you, especially like if you're looking at beds of sediments that have been tilted to high angles due to deformation or uplift, they're far from the original horizontal. Yeah, so then I pose you the question, how how do we even determine between the individual rock layers? Uh, well, sedimentary beds, strata, layers, like those are all kind of using words that go together, but of sediment, they can be distinguished from layers above or below by type, texture, and color of the sediment. So most sediments will accumulate underwater on the surface of the earth, some accumulate on the earth's surface at the base of the atmosphere. I think in either case, the the deposition of sediments tend to occur in events or pulses of increased sedimentation, such as, you know, like draining high flows or floods of rivers. Uh, We can see seasons of strong wind in a desert, uh, I don't know, certain parts of the the tide cycle in shallow marine environments. Or we can even see the yearly freeze and thaw cycles in lakes in subarctic environments such as VARVs. And the result is sedimentary beds that may only be a few millimeters thick. Or they could be up to several meters thick. Yeah. Uh, note the note that the processes that that cause the bedding may be like inferred with careful study uh-huh. from the nature of the bedding itself. So by looking at bedding thickness, we can describe them as massive. So massive, and that means like there's no beds apparent. There's no uh, obvious layer separation. So thick beds in a massive sequence they're going to be greater than 100 centimeters, greater than one meter, right? Yeah. Um, Moderate beds, 10 centimeters to 100 centimeters. Thin beds, 1 centimeter to 10 centimeters. Or laminate, which laminated beds, they're going to be less than 1 centimeter or less than 10 millimeters. Yeah, and I think that was your question uh, several episodes ago. Like, what's the definition of, like, laminated versus, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, anyways, I may digress. <laughs> so, there's there's also, so there are also sedimentary features called cross bedding. So, we talked about massive beddings and the, the, the thicknesses of them. But the fact is, in many cases, sediments tend to settle from water or air and fill in low areas with relatively flat layers is the basis of the principle of original horizontality, one of the important principles of relative geologic age. But however, not all sedimentary beds are going to are, are horizontal to begin with. So cross beds in particular begin as inclined beds formed by sediment piling up in layers on tops of slopes of sediment ripples or dunes or on slopes that go gradually into deeper water as sediment pile up from a river's mouth into the ocean or lake. And cross beds, they form from sediment ripples being moved at the base of a current of water slope downward in the direction the water is flowing. Yeah. Right. So also like windblown sediments that were deposited in the form of sand dunes formed long cross beds that represent the migrating downwind phases of that the sand dune. 
Yeah, and, and I know there's something to deal with, like, the, the sand grains or, like, just the grains. You have that angle of repose, too, that kind of they get to a maximum steepness and then they, they slip, right? Or am I, am I crazy with yeah. that? Yeah. And then depending, yeah, no, on no, the, no, no. depending on the size of it will depend on the, the angle. But anyways, so I, I think another bedding <laughs> feature is known as rhythmic bedding. Uh, rhythmic bedding consists of just I basically what it sounds like. So repeated sequences of beds. Varves are a simple example of rhythmic bedding. Turbidites are a more complex example of rhythmic bedding. And we'll get into it a little bit. And then rhythmic beds are sometimes called rhythmites. Cool word. Rhythmites. rhythmites. When studying sedimentary environments, you'll also run into graded bedding. Yeah. Graded beds are going to have a coarser, which means larger, uh, sediment grain load at the bottom, uh, grading up to finer, smaller sediment grains at the top of the bed. Uh-huh. Or it may occur like in a sequence of beds from that minimum of bed of coarse sediment overlain by a bed of finer sediment or several beds of finer <laughs> and finer sediment on top of each other. Yeah. So it's like graded bedding results from the fact that larger grains of common rocks and minerals fall out of a body water faster than the finer grains will. And that's, I think, like where we'll touch on it, the like velocity, energy kind of thing. So yeah. So then once a flow of water slows enough for the, the sediment grains to settle out, if the sediment grains are in a mix of sizes, they will form a sedimentary bed. What we can think of are a continuous sequence of sedimentary beds with larger sediment grains at the bottom and again, the larger sediment grains at the top. And then there's these features that we know as ripple. I just, I, I don't know why, like, I, I love that word. Maybe yeah. it sounds like nipple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, it, it, is, it, just, it just sounds smooth, right? Like, yeah, so, like um, your voice. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sediment ripples, they're a structure that forms on the surface, right? Like, um, like think of like if you're in the Caribbean and you look down under the water, you're going to see this like undulating sand underneath. That, those are ripples that are yeah. forming. And they originate similar to the way that crop beds develop. By migration of sediment in the form of ripples, larger dunes, which are just like a pronounced version of that built up, and then they're at the base of the current of water or air. Okay, so this is completely off topic and it's tangential. Do you remember when, okay, so in paleontology, when we had to give, we had to research, you know, someone that, you know, the, the one of the scientists that helped, you know, that, that one project that we had to do. Yeah, like we had to, we had to give her, uh, yeah, we have to give patience. Yeah, so mine was over Stephen Jay Gould, right? And I know you were talking about ripple. Over that? Yeah, so I thought mine was over that. No, so like if you remember, did we do the same guy? Maybe, There's but no but I so <laughs> I I if you I don't know if you remember, but I at the beginning I was like, all right, fellows, I just want to let you know that it's okay that you know it's okay that you don't give your women orgasms. <laughs> so. So there, there, there was a, so, and then it was because, because a female orgasm is of zero biological significance. And it was from his essay written, uh, male nipples and clitoral ripples. So, I mean, like, so it's because we all start off the same when we're, when we're in the embryonic stage, but like we males have nipples out of a a necessity for females to have nipples. Women have orgasms out of a necessity for men to have orgasms. So (laughs) for your uh, random stop down. I remember that day. I really do. It was like, holy crap. And I started it off with uh, the, oh, the Austin Powers uh, gold gold member. And I was like, I love gold. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I spelled out, I did G-O-U-U-U-U-U-U-L-D. Oh, I love gold. God. 
it's it's Colbert. Dude, so yeah so anyway so you've probably yeah. seen back to ripples so you've probably seen ripples if you've been to a sandy beach at low tide where the sand has been formed into ripples by the flow of the water when the tide was in or if you've just even looked at a sandy sediment at the base of a stream or river channel so much of what you're saying so it's this yeah. asymmetric sedimentary ripples have steeper faces in the downflow direction of the current another one that i like is is mud cracks. This is another sedimentary Ooh, yeah. kind of structure. And these yeah. are just fine-grained sediments, particularly sediments composed of at least partly of clay. And they will form a polygonal pattern of mud cracks on the surface of a bed if the sediment was covered by water, which dried up or receded and left the bed exposed to the air. One of my favorite things about mud cracks is their ability to be a, an environment for septarians. For, so like, oh, yeah. Uh, is that is that where the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like a cal like you, it's usually a calcite, right? That'll, that does this. But so you'll have mud cracks in your, your mudstone shales or whatever. And then secondary calcite will crystallize inside the and cracks. And it fills yeah. all the cracks. It looks like a dragon egg because people will like take them out. They usually concur in these little, uh, you just get like a big glob of it, right? Yeah. But then we, these people will polish them out to where they look like eggs. And it looks like you're literally holding this dragon egg of a little. They're really cool. Yeah, right. That's what, that's why they look like that. But, Pretty um, cool. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Back to it. So we can't forget about fossils. No, fossils. fossils important. Yeah. They're the remains, traces of biological organisms, right? Preserved in our rocks and sediments. So fossils are commonly found in them. And they, they provide evidence of life forms, uh, but they also provide evidence of how life on Earth evolved over the course of Earth's history. Uh -huh. And they provide important information about the depositional environment in which the sediments were thrown down there. Yeah. So I think when fossils are brought up, I think we, a lot of people really glance over like just like the, just, I, I think the basic. So, okay. So an example, what I'm trying to say is like a fish fossil, right? So we may right. just see a fish, but what it's implying to us as geologists is that the sediments that were deposited at that time were in a body of water. Right. Just much like yeah. when we see fossils of leaves or trees, this is going to imply that the sediments were deposited on land above sea level. Right. Yeah. We use all these things to tell the most complete and accurate story to help us give understanding of how, why, where, and when of particular region. You know, we'll have future episodes this season <clears throat> that we'll, we'll go into full detail about all of these different depositional environments and their and the faces associated with them. Uh, but but let's I'd say let's briefly discuss what we've been talking about, about using an example of sediments and their particular depositional environment. Yeah, so we, um, I think it'd be a good thing. We've talked about these before, but let's tell the story of turbidites. Okay, so yeah, turbidites. So we know that the ocean receives most of the clastic sediments that erode from the continents, right? So on the edges yeah. of the continental shelves where the submarine slope tilts down into much deeper water, accumulations of mud and sand deposited by rivers are going to be building up. Well, eventually, so much sediment builds up on the edge of the steepening slope that it is likely to give way in what we know as an underwater landslide. The submarine landslide will flow down the slope into deeper water, mixing with the seawater as it, as it goes to form what is called a turbidity current that is influenced mm -hmm. by gravity. So there's that energy. Um, as these sediments yeah. gradually settle out of the turbidity current onto the deeper ocean floor, the, the coarser grain sediments, so those sediments 
segments, grains with larger diameters, are really going to settle out at the bottom first, followed by finer and finer sediments in that sequence. Yeah, this, this creates that graded sequence we were talking about earlier yeah. of, of the sediments. It, it grades upwards from a bed of sand through a layer of silt, and then even finer, a top layer of fine mud, because mud is, like we said, for a mix of silt and clay. And this graded deposit, it'll become a rock, a rock unit basically known as a turbidite yeah uh, a rock type and so over the years one turbidite is likely to be deposited on top of another over and over again thousand times yeah. and this this creates re- repeated beds of coarse sand fine mud which may total thousands of feet thick right. um, if, if the parts of the ocean floor end up becoming part of a continent a continent you're going to see these turbidites get be a part of a major component of accreted terrain like much like we see in the pacific that you, you'll see these things that are just like, why is this here? But it's because we, we see these things moving towards continent-wide. And it's like, why is this like debris flow almost looking environment here? But they're, they're different and... And so it's good to recognize these environments. No, absolutely. And, 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 and we see the depositional environment is, in general is going to be marine in nature, right? So it, it's, yeah. it's underwater in the ocean. So the deposit of the turbidite is a, a good example of a facies, right? So these clues that mm-hmm. help us understand its formation were the energy of the environment, which led to the small scale features in the deposited graded bedding in the finding upward manner. And then aren't these usually described as BOMA sequence or something, I want to say? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I recall the Zoma sequence. It's like it's an ideal sequence of beds for turbidites that are basically in the low density regime. So when I say low density, I also mean low low energy. Um, so once turbidity currents start losing their steam yeah. at the farthest reach of the turbidite in that event. So we, we said earlier, like you may have thousands of these stacked up. <laughs> so like in one, one event of a turbidity current, at the farthest reach of that, sediment still accumulates, but it's dominated by the finer sediment. Two things, two things. It, it's really, I think it can also help us determine too, kind of like where we're at. So we can just say ocean basin, but that doesn't really mean much, right? So I think it also, right. I mean, I know if we think about it a little bit more, like it, it's going to be, I think more on a, like where they're deposited at, right, is going to be in a passive, actual passive margin, right? Because you have to have that shelf for yes. it to build up. Because if it was on an active margin, then it would just be subducted, right? And then it would make the, right. but I mean, like then yeah. it can transition later into an, you know, to be an accreted terrain, but I mean, just the idea of these deposits are yeah, going to be on a passive margin. Definitely passive, yeah. And then side note number two. So I know we said Boma sequence, but the man that they're named after, Arnold Boma, right? So the man behind the sequence was born in the Netherlands, but he actually died down the road from us in Frisco, Texas in 2011. <laughs> what a place to die. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a nice area, I guess. So. I, I hope they put the Texas star right on top of him. <laughs> Go Cowboys. I don't yeah, know. I'm sure. Yeah, so that's, that's crazy. Anyway, yeah, so I, you're, you're right. So there, there's another sequence that describes the ideal vertical succession of beds in a higher energy, higher density regime that is called the low sequence, but Baggins, why don't you rapid fire the Boma sequence and then I'll give the low down on the low sequence. Okay. I'm going to go bottom to top. Okay. I usually like to do it that way. Some people go top to bottom, but I'm bottom to top. Always. So you're a bottom so, basically. I am a bottom. <laughs> I like bottom. <laughs> Power bottom. <laughs> um, so you, <laughs> you have a finding upward sequence of and, and when I list these, like I'm going to say A, B, C, D, like yeah. those are actually what the Boma guy 
called that. So, so A, bottom layer. Math is fine. The course grain sandstone. But it's going to have appreciable rip-up class. So it's like erosion-wise, it's coming down that slope. And it's still going to have enough energy to rip up part of that underlying shale near the base. Yep. B, planar laminated. Not your cross-stratification anymore. But planar laminated, fine to medium grain sandstone. In the base of that BOMA B unit, it's going to have flute cast and cool little bioturbation that right yeah see that layers ripple laminated fine grain sandstone you're going to find flute and flame structures because of local deformation of the ripples then you're going to have parallel in d parallel laminated siltstone e massive ungraded mudstone sometimes with trace fossils and it can be different difficult to di- differentiate the boma d okay. so you basically see like as i went down like i was like okay you got coarse grain oh you got planar laminated sandstone or you got ripple like we're decreasing in energy as we come up in the sequence so i mean would i, I had question a random question so is that why you would see the local deformation of that sea levels from the 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 weight of the d and the e above it or just like even i if think you had- so like, i think that like when it says local deformation like your energy level is oh. starting to really deplete and okay. so really i think it's talking about just the surface so your depth, like the ripples won't have that like really beautiful form they okay. always do. It's going to be deformed in the way that it's less obvious. Okay. I think that's what that means. Okay. Well, I mean, like, I don't, I, I, I'm sure we'll get into it when we have our whole episode on, on turbidite deposits. So, oh, but, yeah. and then the low sequence complements and adds three additional layers to the better known BOMA sequence. So it also is a finding upward sequence, but like you said, it describes a set of sedimentary structures in the sandstone actually that are deposited by high density turbidity current. Yeah. And so, because I like bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, S1 going to be the first one, bottom. Uh, it's going to be a sandstone or a conglomerate. It could be a mix, like a conglomeratic sandstone. I, I love that word. I don't know why. Or that, that, that rock type. And it's going to display parallel laminated to cross laminated beds that are that indicate that traction deposit so it drags each grain across and so it, it's trying to it's laminating it because of that energy on the bottom yeah and then in that s2 so you were the s1 s2 is the inverse graded fine to coarse so we're seeing a coarsening upward sequence so the the sandstone layer that overlie s1 and there's going to be evidence of grain to grain collisions in within the kind of the structure that we see there yeah and that's that's strange to me because i'm like do you see like battered grain <laughs> like how did they how did they figure that out i i, I don't know if it, maybe with the the contact angles when you look at it under a microscope i think I, that's that's gotta be it it's uh. <laughs> so then the uh s3 top layer is going to be massive degraded fine to coarse grain sandstone and so they represent deposition from a turbulent and it's going to be really similar to Boma's A layer. So they actually, like, uh, low, he, he did, he went through and he, like, renamed all of uh, Boma's stuff. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah. But he renamed all of them. But really, like, all you got to do is pack on S1 through S3 yeah. below Boma A and you got it. Like get the full suite. Yeah, no, and then yeah. so that so what we wanted to do with the the turbidite, I know we're gonna have our own episode, but we wanted to just highlight so how we can use the all the the energy and the the features that we see in that to kind of 
give a, a feature that we know as a facies that was deposited in set environment, right? Because there's only a, a, a handful of environments that it can be deposited into. So uh, anyways, there's, I mean, there's other ones that we're going to get into in later episodes, such as your varves, yeah. right? So then we have limestones, marine landstone, limestones. We have the meandering rivers, braided streams. We have deltas, right? And, yeah. then, and then, so there's all of that. But I, I do feel like that would probably be a good place to really, I guess, close things off for, for tonight. I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we like, we, we have like with sedimentary rocks, like it's so expansive because everyone specializes, right? Like you're going to have a guy that's only into braided streams and he's going to, he's going to have like, you have your normal faces, but then he's going to have faces of those faces. Yeah, <laughs> like the goes, further. Like, once you start, yeah, and it, it sounds like, it sounds excessive, but really it, it's so that we can make sense of it. Like when I think of being a scientist, I'm like, it's not for me. It's, it's so that we contribute to science that's more easily understood for further use, right? Yeah. And so it, it, it sounds like this is, oh, well, why do they have so much detail on, on all these things? It's, it's because there is that much detail. And there's more detail. We just can't even encompass that. So and, and, and it, it's I, a continued pursuit. And again, it's it, it just tell, helps add to the the chapters of the books or the you know the chapters of Earth's history. And that and that's all this is, right? And then hopefully yeah. each one of these podcasts, I guess, making a for I guess what I'm what I'm, what I'll be doing in my legal research classes, do briefs of <laughs> cases. So this is like hopefully we're just yeah. we'll be doing briefs of the the different chapters as we move forward. Uh, with this season of sedimentary basins. All right, so uh, I think uh, maybe we could do a quick little... to another segment of that freaking rocks so the more i listen to that yeah, so, yeah. so i know when you first when you first did that when we made that thing i was like man i don't because i've been i i heard just playing it the way that i played it for like so long but now yeah. when i listen to it i just i hear your uh your your floatiness <laughs> to it it dude i i enjoy it more and more each time i hear it i'm just like and i get it i get i, I get well, like, oh no yeah, go ahead. I, I remember i remember tracking that and now i'm like track that differently because when i track that i didn't like it i used a strand and iridium uh-huh. which is it's basically a, a virtual like little it's a pedal but it, it emulates a cabinet and an amp and so i was like how do i make this sound big and, it, and like when i'm hearing it i'm like i made that sound too big like it sounds like it's like far away but i, I still i love like i like your part better right, but... I <laughs> so. no but like I, I i don't know maybe that's because it's it's not our parts that we like the other part because we're it's it's not <laughs> something that we you know what I'm saying it the compliments it's, the more I listen to it yeah, yeah the more I like it I'm just like yeah God I, I feel it more and more each time but I I guess that's with anything with music right like the first time you hear a song oh, yeah. you're just like I like it but I don't know why I like it <laughs> and yeah. then and then you go on and you're like I love this song so much like yeah because you understand it but so okay yeah. so I know we're running against the time but so. Briefly, Brian, what what are your band plans for 2021? 2021 is going to be awesome. 
Yes, it is. No, you said you that you that they wanted okay. to announce it before you announced it. They do want to announce it, but I think I can announce it so that it's without saying who it is. Okay. So my band got signed Woo! to a record label. Yeah, yeah why don't you rub it in there, Ryan? <laughs> Sorry, but no, I'm just... I, I've never had that happen before. Uh, so it was kind of like, wow, like, you don't want to sign it. So it's it's cool. It's maybe not like I remember like watching Blink One Eighty Two and even stupid movies like Josie and the Perfect Cat. Yeah, like you see these like signed bands that are just like drowning in the liquor and money, and it's, it's not like that. Yeah, it's now it's uh, your indie labels that they just they're not really there to make a lot of money off of you, which is really weird. They do make money off of you, but it's they help Dominal. you yeah. because they like the music and the genre. So the label we got signed to is really indie. They're they're on a smaller scale, but not really small. So either way, it's like they open a door to us to be able to create vinyl merch and all that stuff, do Europe tours, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I mean, like when, they they could do the marketing for you and take yeah. a little less off your plate as a I guess independent band trying to do right. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we're right now like um, in the middle of writing the last half of the record will release this year. And what's cool is like doing the depositional environment stuff, the latter half of our record is going to be based on a, uh, a submerged motif. Oh, so nice. it's really all aquatic thing. I know there's a song on there that's going to be called Mariana. Okay. And it's all about like Mariana's trench and imagining you were down there basically. So is it, so, is it going to have uh, a lot of pressure and overburden? A lot of, uh, uh, build up yeah <laughs> nice. yeah it's like very very like uh, round like reverbs that are dense because i when i think of being down there like yeah like heavy <laughs> did you just do like a, a cool keyboard thing what was that no that was my dog barking <laughs> are you serious <laughs> yeah i was like oh he's trying to like get in the boat <laughs> no no <laughs> i think he's chasing my cats around that's amazing okay yeah like so we're we're gonna paper the reverb i guess i could talk about the first part of the record first too it's gonna be called so the the record we call a drip dash submerged so the first half is very airy and lots of energy and then the second half is very heavy but very as if you were underwater oh nice so, so you are going through the you're going from the the continental to the transitional into the marine oh yeah oh this man literally like they didn't know it but Hey, no, I'm not. I'm not this whole guy. (laughs) You're so meta, Brian. You're meta. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's. I mean, I think that's really exciting, though. Congratulations to the the signing, man. That's. I'm. I'm I'm happy for you. So I mean, yeah. Our our my band's plan is to, I guess, just continue (laughs) make music, and then hopefully the the pandemic slows down and play a couple shows. I know that we don't, we're not on the scale of, um, let's do an album, but I know we want to record a couple more singles starting to, to pump out a little bit more songs. I I know I've briefly mentioned that, but I think we finished finally uh, a heavier song. And then there are a couple more heavier songs too that are in the mix. And then I propose, say what? You sent me something not too long ago and I was like, heck yeah, that's so good. The verse in it was fucking badass. 
Yeah. So I mean that's and that's basic. So I mean, but it's 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 much of the same thing, and just I don't know. I I'm gonna keep doing it until it's no longer fun. <laughs> well, like to be honest, though, like the stuff you sent me, it flows together really well. I I mean, I say why not? Like put an EP together or something. Like, no, yeah, it, no, and, and I think so I, good. I think that's the overall idea. Is like we're instead of just like going in and making an entire album, just you know, do a song here, do a song there, do a song, and then like when it's all together. <laughs> Together, put it in one single kind of compilation type thing. Yeah, so I'm I'm there for it, man. And I I'm with you. I am so ready for uh, the, at least vaccinations or the pandemic slowdown. Because yeah. I have not seen a live show. I think the last live show I was at was mine, and that was was that the one that uh, last year? was at the shipping and receiving. That was it. Oh, yeah. I was there. That was before we even <laughs> had the idea of uh, geology on the rocks podcast. Yeah. And, and that was kind of like, we knew the virus was there, but like we, unfortunately, probably due to the administration at the time, didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> and we were still having shows, right? And then it was right after that, I remember, it all just hit. Yeah, we yeah. Like, everything's done. Yeah, yeah, so I think it was still like real, where there was maybe, I mean, reported cases. So I guess that was that like yeah. February or something, maybe even. Yeah. I mean, it may have even been March. It may have been first of March, yeah. Yeah, because like I know, I, I know I we still have because on my birthday you remember you came over and i had like yeah. that show uh at my house yeah, that was so fun and, and then I, I still don't understand the letter kenny thing i i, I have not watched that uh, you need to you need to watch was, you need to watch some letter kenny man it is it's it a, was all based on that right yeah it was a super party. super soft birthday party but yeah no it seems like <laughs> after that like I, my kids didn't even have a birthday this year because of uh yeah yeah, it might even really, really much. But I, I'm, I, I'm hoping that'll happen. And in, in like, I want to make sure we stick to our oath of doing a show. Like, at least yeah, once. don't don't like, forget about us, gotta... small people. Now that you're a assigned band, <laughs> but we'll call no, it no. what I was. I know I because we cut this the segment off last time because it just ran super long. But we need to call it the Geology on the Rocks tour. And just if you're a, <laughs> yeah. if you're a geologist and you live in DFW, like we should all just play a show together. It'd just yeah. be it'd be like a, a conglomerate, right? So more so, uh, like it's just it'd just be like different types of rock, or just you know all sorts of uh, well, jumping. That, that yeah, I, I hate when shows are all the same style. Like to me, it's like why, like why did you do that? Yeah, it's even bigger act. Like when all like I went to Underoath one time, and they had they had Caspian open for them, which is a post rock band. But they, it's like, so you need the difference. Yeah. You don't need to be compared. You just need to exist. Yeah. Together, so, so I, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We're going to, we're going to play a show together when we get back at it. So, yeah. But cool, man, man, yeah, well, I think this has been another uh, successful episode. I enjoyed it. I, I agree. All right. So that has been another episode of Geology on the Rocks. Yeah. So remember yeah. to, I guess, keep it cool. Stay tuned. And keep it. And. On the rocks. The rocks. <laughs> it's so Dude. hard. We're not Dude, together. I know. <laughs> okay, we can meter it out. Or, we'll, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna count to three, and we're gonna go and keep it on the rocks. Okay, one, two, three, and keep and it. Keep <laughs> it on. <laughs> Are you saying keep it? Oh no, no, we can both say it. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. One, two, three. And, and keep it keep it on on the <laughs> dude i'm keeping it no, uh, it's gonna be yeah, the episode <laughs> oh so we're not in front of each other it's so much i can't see 
I can't see it. I can't see what you're doing, Brian. So, but until next week, man, I can't wait. Me either, man. Always fun. Always fun. Always fun. <laughs>